So let's get started. So where are we? Uh, I guess we're at 1645 Spalding, but uh, <laughs> but let's go. Let's uh, go a little deeper with that. And uh, uh, so uh, you know, there there are seasons in the Christian life. The Bible talks a lot about seasons. Uh, from Genesis one, uh, you know, all the major themes of the Bible start in Genesis one, two, and three and go all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. And um, one of the most important themes is that God created days, weeks, months, and years to help us, uh, you know, kind of, or, you know, not get uh, unorganized and, and know, you know, know not where we are and confused and so forth. Time boundaries like that, reevaluating goals daily and weekly and annually, all all kind of things like that help us, uh, you know, kind of you know feel like we're not adrift in a you know sea storm in life. And uh, one of the most important things, I'm very dry today, so I'm going to sip on water once in a while. One one of the most important things. Uh, is that there are seasons in the Christian life. And, you know, Ecclesiastes 3, to everything there is a season and so forth, and, and the time for every event. Um, and some seasons are uh, drier, and some seasons are kind of a, a move of the Spirit of God. And so uh, it's, it seems like we, we were uh, kind of uh, in a pretty nice uh fruit-bearing, wonderful season a few years back where the Spirit of God's presence was strong. And it was about the time that we met the Burks and the O'Gians and, and uh, the Gearhearts and I, I don't know. And so a lot of times seasons can be a little bit like a wave coming in and, and coming out. And uh, what happens when there's a, a sort of an increase in visitation of God's presence is there's usually an ingathering of new people, but uh, then some of them stay and grow up in the Lord, and some of them don't. And, uh, and it's always sad when people don't embrace uh, what, what the Lord has for them and, and you know, start to grow and, and encounter the Lord deeper and get you know, better thinking in their walk with God and all kind of all kind of things that Grace Christian Fellowship has to offer. But, you know, recently there's just been a sense, it's, you know, it kind of started with, uh, I, I keep my ears open in the leadership meetings to hear what all the leaders are saying and, and then kind of ask the Lord when I'm alone, uh, you know, is the Spirit of God saying something through these people? And there, uh, there was a lot of uh, really tough needs, you know, in uh, physically, emotionally, uh, marriages, uh, newer people that, that, that really needed a lot of help and, and so forth. And, you know, a lot of people suggested we fast about it. And then a lot of the uh, leadership team started fasting. And uh, when we, then we all agreed to fast at least one day a week and... Uh, we couldn't really agree on the day because we all have such different schedules. We we tried to do it so we'd be fasting on the same day, but I think it ended up working out that some are fasting on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. But you know, oh well, that uh, J John Wesley in the early church practiced fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, so um, those are pretty good days for fasting. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and you know, the Bible has a lot to say, and you know the. The chapter Isaiah 58, which is one of the, which is the most uh, instructive chapter in the Bible on fasting, and probably secondly, the book of Joel, um, you know, has uh, kind of six warnings about attitudes, actions, and motivations uh, that, that will uh, displease the Lord when you're fasting. And then it has, depending on how you count them, 10 or 11 or 12 promises and to leave, to, to not use fasting to attain those promises is to basically say, you know, I could be making $27 an hour, but 
$4 an hour would be fine. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, I, I uh, at one time was a sales trainer uh, for the company I worked for in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I used to talk to a lot of the guys because some of the, there would be guys that were, they were, you know, you know, we technically worked eight to five, but we of course had customers all over the country. So especially in California and Washington, Seattle, uh, our customers weren't, they weren't quitting at five and, and sometimes staying an extra hour might make the difference in getting a deal that, uh, to the next step. And a lot of the deals, you, you made around $3,000 commission was your cut of it. And, uh, you know, to go home and leave $3,000 on the table just doesn't make any sense. And I, and I remember one guy who never really got off the ground with the sales. I was always pleading with him because, you know, he, he was out at the door at 10 minutes to 5 no matter what was happening in his business. And I let, you know, like, don't leave with, with money still on the table. And, uh, you know, like when, uh, you know, uh, staying and typing the documents and getting them out tonight, will make that deal close a day sooner. And, of course, you always have the possibility of the customer changing his mind until the deal's over. So, uh, you know, get it done. And I, I don't know, uh, I'm not totally satisfied with that metaphor. I wish I could do a better metaphor. But to not use the tool of fasting is to, to have God trying to give you his abundant life and you're saying, I don't really want it. Uh, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just a mistake uh, to not use that tool. And what I love about Isaiah 58 is there, there are people, uh, you know, Teresa is very gifted in fasting and, and she knocks out seven-day fast and things like that easily. Most people can't and, and don't. Uh, you know, uh, when I first started doing more like seven to 15 day fast, I have a tendency to kind of open my mouth about, about whatever's going on in my life. So I was leading the campus ministry in Bowling Green and I pretty much had like over 30 some people in the, in the fellowship fasting seven to 15 days. And uh, I, I remember the first time Catherine did like a seven or 10 day fast. She, I think she almost died. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, uh, she used a phrase that I, that I use sometimes if I make a mistake where I'll say, I'll say it must never happen again. I think she took that approach to doing longer fasts. Uh, some, some people are really just called to do like one day fast. And you may not even have the physical strength or, or uh, what capacity to do more. And uh, that, you know, that take, like to, to do longer fast takes no, uh, reading quite a few books on fasting, learning some things about how your body works during the time. And, and, it, and it's not necessarily for everyone. But really, the blessings of Isaiah 58, it starts out, is this not the day, day that I choose? You know, the, the first line is, why have we fasted and thou hast not heard? And then he, you know, t tells them you fast for, you know, uh, striving and I forget what else. And then, he, you know, so then he starts to talk about the positive fast. And he says, is this not the day? And that chapter actually pertains to what Israel did called the Day of uh, Atonement Fast, which is now called Yom Kippur. And it's for a one-day fast. And so you don't have to feel like you have to fast three days, seven days, 15 days, 40 days. Some people are called to that. You know, I have a pastor friend, uh, some of you might know him, Pastor Brown at Bethel. And for many years when uh, he used to fast, do a 40-day fast once a year. And uh, um, I, I actually remember because I was kind of one of his helpers and uh, I would, we would, when he was fasting, we'd meet up extra early on Sunday mornings just to pray for him to have strength to uh, preach and so forth. Because, you know, after about three or four weeks, you, you start to get a little weaker and, you're, and you have trouble keeping your blood pressure up and things like that. So um, anyway, um, so, you know, with that, uh, with this emphasis that Teresa and other leaders on the leadership team said, let's fast for this person, let's fast for that person. 
Uh, let's fast for this couple. Let's fast for that couple. Um, you know, it became clear to me in, in, uh, that God would have us to seek a season of visitation. Now, in most of the evangelical world, they use the word revival. And I don't want to make a big deal of it, but here's, here's what I just want to suggest. Sometimes revivals have too much of the connotation of a wave in, a wave out, or more like a roller coaster ride. And so we have this little revival, and then we just go back to being uh, half backslidden and half worldly and too, too involved in too many things. And I, uh, as we're going to see today, uh, increases of the presence of God, visitation, revival, they start with confession of sin and humbling ourselves. And they start with not only examining those wicked things in our life that God wants to set free, us free from, but those good things that are godly and good, but we're too involved in them and they're distracting our walk with God. And that can even be video games, whatever. You know, uh, I, I, I did a little bit of a, a fasting recently myself here and there. And, uh, uh, you know, probably the, one of the most uh, helpful things that came out of it is I never thought I would be tempted to play a video game in my life because I have always considered them like a super waste of life and time. And yet, uh, you know, before I was a Christian, or, uh, going back that far, one of the things my dad and I did together is we played this game called Double Solitaire. So it's really just like single solitaire, but you play up on piles jointly and you either both win together or you both lose together. And so it's kind of, kind of a, you know, and our, our family played a lot of cards. I guess that's pretty common of German families, euchre, pinochle. Um, so, um, so uh, you know, uh, when I got a smartphone a few years back, I, I probably was one of the last people in, you know, Western culture to get a smartphone. <laughs> I, I had a flip phone that, you know, I was proud of the fact that I'd paid like under $20 for it, and it was like 12 years old or something, or 15 years old or something. And uh, then it fell in a glass of water, and that was the end of the smartphone. But, uh, and uh, it, the technology was so old that the, uh, that, that, you know, the uh, contact list couldn't be back, backed up, so I had to start over. But, uh, um, so when, when I finally got a smartphone, I ended up uh, downloading this game called of Solitaire. And, uh, you know, uh, I hope you're in the mood to hear your pastor confess sins, but I probably spent, wasted more time on Solitaire than I would like to admit. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things that happened in the middle of one of my fasts as I was seeking God is I just deleted the Solitaire app, and uh, it was like, getting set free from demons or something. But, uh, you know, so, because, uh, you know, that's time you could be reading and seeking God and, and, and doing much more productive things and playing solitaire. I guess you could say it does have a little bit of mental acuity involved in it, but not, but very little. But, uh, and uh, so, so, you know, that's like part of a season of seeking God is, you know, solitaire in itself isn't necessarily sinful. It's not pornography. It's not murder. Uh, it's not the occult, you know. Uh, and uh, it's not romance novels, although I've never read one of those yet. But uh, it's, it's not even mystery novels, which my wife likes. I, I, I just watch the shows with her, the mystery shows. But... Um, I don't think I've ever read a mystery novel, but, uh, well, kids' ones, I think. But, uh, uh, you know, the truth is, it's not, it doesn't really contribute anything positive to the kingdom of God. And uh, that's, that's simple as that. What, what good is it? So, uh, and of course, it's okay to do some things that are worthless. I still uh, spend around five minutes a day checking all the scores from Major League Baseball and, uh, and about another three minutes checking what's going on in the NBA. And, 
And th frankly, I don't have any more interest in that. And until the playoffs, then sometimes I get a little more and watch a few games. But um, so, uh, you know, when you're in a season of seeking God, there's a kind of sanctifying yourself to that. Okay? You, you've got to kind of say, even what's the good things in my life that are limiting the intensity I have in my passion for Jesus? Um, if, you, if you want uh, to think about that more, which I would, I would suggest that probably everybody in this room would be benefited by thinking about that uh, more, uh, John Piper's book called A Hunger for God, Seeking God Through Prayer and Fasting, which is on the list we had last week, is an excellent book on that very subject. And he actually starts out by discussing that, uh, that, that food was made by God and it's good. He declared it good after he made it. And uh, in fact, he made it on the day he declared things very good. And it's made as, as part of covenant celebration. And it's, it's so important for families to eat together and, and all that. Uh, but, uh, you know, even the good things of God can become a little bit of a distraction. And so God has uh, ordained that we might step away from some of that once in a while and uh, kind of get our bearings better in the Lord and, and get... Uh, a fresh do dose of love for God and intimacy with God and zeal for God uh, because there's things that dull, dull our zeal all the time, even good things. Okay? Everyone following me? So uh, tonight, today I'm going to kind of talk about visitation when God comes down, but you could call it revival. I just like the idea of visitation because to me it has sort of the connotation of... Um, Let's see, let's do what we can to sustain this. Now, later in the outline, I have a, uh, a book listed twice because it was rewritten and there was a second subtitle uh, given, but it's called Quenching the Spirit by William D. Ortega. And it's, uh, it's quite a, it, it covers a lot of wonderful things. It's a great book. Uh, and we have it in, in the library. I read the older version, which I think I listed as the second title. Um, but um, I haven't read the newer version, uh, but I'm, you know, supposedly it's new and improved. But uh, um, he, he deals, you know, he kind of jumps right in the middle and starts, which is an interesting literary technique, but he starts with the Great Awakening. Uh, you know, the song we sang today, uh, Come, Come Thou Fount, is written by a guy named Robert Robinson, who was converted to Christ during the Great Awakening by, uh, under the preaching of George Whitfield and became associated with uh, John Wesley and, and was a pastor in, in their movement for many years and uh, became a theologian, author, very, very fruitful guy. And... Uh, uh, of course, that's the most famous song he ever wrote, but, uh, but he did a lot for Christ. And um, so, um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, so, uh, what, you know, what, we're, what we need to seek, what we desperately need is the, a visitation of the presence of God that's sustained and more than anything we've ever experienced. And there's a price to pay to have that. That's what I'm trying to get at today, if the Lord help, helps me. So I, um, I've had the privilege in... I'm going to have a hard time getting through things today without crying. I've had the privilege in, uh, by the grace of God, and, and you know, I'm a, this is uh, 46 years now in the Lord, and uh, I've been a part of three uh, 
sustained moves of God that lasted for several years and brought hundreds of people into the kingdom. And each of those is still like the, one of the reasons I like having Stephen Shepherd here every year is because I met him during the first of those the three that I've been a part of. And, uh, you know, the guy has literally started churches that have started churches that, uh, that are in about five countries, and we're talking hundreds of churches today. You know, amazing stuff. And uh, all through Mexico, all through the mountains of Mexico, all through Peru, all through uh, Uganda, all through Borneo, uh, and... And it, you know, places that he had to travel through jungles to get to the churches. And uh, he's not some big, rich missionary organization. It's a little family-run thing called Church Planning International. And I know the guys on his board. I used to be on the board. And uh, I'm actually considering doing that again, but we'll see. Um, so... Uh, you know, it doesn't, take, uh, it doesn't take a lot of people. It takes a willing person and a zealous person. And what God could do through you and, and through us is much bigger than you've ever asked, thought, or whatever, exceedingly abundantly above all that you can even dream of. And that's what God hopes to do through, through our church. So uh, let's, let's get at this. Um, you know, I, I, so I, you know, I start with thoughts on seeking and sustaining revival or visitation. And I listed fasting, mourning, confession, and repentance because those are some of the first ingredients that must come together. You, um, you, if you've never read some stories of revivals, I encourage you to start with uh, some stuff about the Asbury Revival in, in uh, Kentucky in 1970, uh, February 2nd and 3rd, 1970. And uh, if you can get Robert Coleman's, uh, he's the guy who wrote The Master Plan of Evangelism and The Master Plan of Discipleship. And he has a book called something like The Coming World Revival. And then he has a book about the Asbury Revival because he was a professor on campus when it happened. And he later went uh, tra transferred to Wheaton, I think, or Moody, but I think Wheaton. But he, and he was, uh, during that time and for many years, he was on the board of directors of Billy, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and was uh, always very associated with Billy Graham. But... Um, I believe he was probably Methodist since he was at Asbury, but I don't know what, if, what particular denomination he was or anything. But his book on uh, evangelism and discipleship, uh, Master Plan of Evangelism and Discipleship, are ones we highly recommend. If you haven't read those, uh, you're, you're missing something. So, um, you know, in the Asbury Revival, as I, as I uh, remember, you know, it's been about... 15, 20, 30 years, something like that, since I read Robert Coleman's account of it. And uh, I, I kind of reread some accounts online today, but they didn't really cover what I would call the anatomy of the revival. If you've never kind of studied the anatomy of revivals, you might start with Charles Finney's revival lectures. But, uh, like, you know, analyze what makes a revival happen, and you'll always see that almost inevitably it starts with somebody publicly confessing their sins. And then the, the confessing of sins becomes, becomes contagious. And that's what happened at Asbury. Uh, I can't, there was a young man that, that basically at the, at the chapel service they had confessed that uh, you know, he was uh, two, two or three months from graduating and that he had been a hypocrite just playing games with God and not really walking with God for the whole four years he was on campus. And uh, then, then a young lady confessed uh, that sort of thing. And uh, 
And then the Spirit of God fell so strong that there were people on their knees, on their faces, uh, repenting, crying, uh, seeking God. Uh, the, uh, they ended up having to cancel classes for uh, over four days. And the meeting lasted, uh, went 24-7 for eight days. And... Uh, um, uh, uh, Nathan might remember when you were in sixth grade at East State and Christian, uh, there was sort of a little mini thing like that, not, not anywhere near as dramatic, but um, yeah, you might remember that when Carly and Carla were uh, in eighth grade, they had, you know, both of them had gotten more serious about Christ uh, in, from their trip to El Salvador and and all that, and they ended up sharing their testimony. And, uh, um, you know, before uh, long, I, uh, I think Carla went first, then Carly, I, I, I can't remember for sure, but, uh, you know, that Carly was Carla's best friend when they were in school, and we called him Lee and La. And, uh, uh, but as as the as the second one was sharing, I can't remember. You know, people just started uh, the spirit of God just started falling on the audience, and kids started coming forward. And probably like forty or fifty kids came forward from three or four grades to repent and seek God. And I, I remember, uh, you know, the the, te- I, the teachers, myself, and a number of people were there. Uh, praying with and ministering to some, some of the kids for uh, well over an hour, probably two hours, and uh, it was it was really really quite amazing uh, how God took a lot of uh, you know uh, Christian schools are sort of notorious for for a lot of kids that aren't really walking with God and are lukewarm and one foot in the world and one foot in in the Lord and you know it's kind of hard not to be that way when you grow up in Christ and you take everything for granted and uh, and so forth and you definitely need some kind of an intervention where God touches you and, and you know capture your, you know uh, the, the Christian school probably pre-evangelizes you and you kind of need God to finish the job and uh, and so it was one of those kind of do you remember that day Nathan so um but, you know, those kind of things are the sovereign work of God. And, but there are things we can do to posture our heart to inviting him. Um, you know, one of the things uh, we can actually do is we can be a, an atmosphere that's rude to the Holy Spirit. Or we can be an atmosphere that, that's uh, attractive and kind to the Holy Spirit. And a lot of that has to do with like rebellion and pride and all sorts of things like, you know. All right. I probably don't have time to read all these scriptures, but all these scriptures are kind of important for this season. I'm really asking you, I do not want to find a bunch of these outlines in the pews later today. Take these home and, and meditate on these scriptures this week. This is something God is calling our whole church to. Okay? So in Exodus uh, 33, God says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you're an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. It's so encouraging. Praise Jesus. When the, <laughs> when the people heard this uh, sad word, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Then he said uh, to him, that's Moses saying to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from the here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, right? That's so true. So that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other peoples who are upon the face of the earth. One of the uh, 
the fastest growing genre of Christian books throughout evangelicalisms are books about what the heck is wrong with the whole Christian church in America today. There's tons of books coming out on that subject in the last several years because everybody knows it's in really bad shape. Everybody knows that. Nobody, th you know, once in a while, I'll hear a preacher on TV or something say where, you know, the church is in the best shape it's ever been in. And I'm thinking, where the heck have you been living? And uh, so, um, you know, compromise with materialism, lukewarm, uh, everyone for themselves, not, not having any community, no one having any sense of, of working with leadership, you know, so, you know, a lot of times when I, when I meet with people and so forth, the hardest thing to get past, they'll say they want to meet and they want to meet and they want to meet, and then they just argue with everything you say and they're, and they're know-it-alls. And it's kind of like, what the... You know, I, I would love to meet with you if uh, it was actually doing you any good. So, um, Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. This is a time when you can find him. Lots of people are paying a price so that you can find him. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thinking. And let him return to the Lord, for he will have compassion uh, on him and, and, and to our God for you abundantly parting. Hosea 10, 12. So with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. New King James says mercy. Um, ESV says something like uh, loving something. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until, you know, until's bold and underlined on purpose. It's time, we need to seek the Lord right now until he comes to rain righteousness on you. The other night in my living room, uh, Deanna and I were on a call for a couple hours to uh, uh, Christians in another state that are in a, in really having some deep struggles and we are helping them and um, afterwards uh, you know the Lord just sort of descended on us and we uh, fellowship for an hour or more and um, and both of us talked about how it seemed like in our church little bit like it did uh, yesterday, Golda and I were running some errands together, and we kept saying, it looks like it's going to rain. <laughs> you know, sometimes it just, and, uh, and then, and, and we even said it's, it's, it more feels like when it first start to sprinkle, but you, you, you almost are kind of like, let's finish these errands quick because it's going to pour. And, uh, you know, I believe that's where the sense we've had. We've had a lot of extra prayer meetings, especially with the leadership team. We've invited uh, some of the girls from the Red House and the Gondard House, and Bradbury came to one. Bradbury ended up saying it was the most anointed, filled with the Spirit of God worship uh, that, that he's ever experienced, right? And uh, I, I just want to say it's, that's just sprinkling, you know, it's, gonna, it's gonna, like God wants to make it rain. And we all have a, a, an ability to be uh, a more conducive atmosphere for that. You know, one of the, one of the, the, the call to worship verse that Sam chose today, uh, remember it had, the, you know, they were about to, the Lord was about to do this, and they, and they put away their bales and their asterisk. I always love that. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, the tr that it's so, that's so real. The truth is, uh, there's some things you probably need to put away. You know, some of you probably need to take a baseball bat to your television uh, or, you know, or uh, maybe just put it out in the garage or something. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, and again, it's not always the wicked things. But, you know, if, you, if there is an ongoing struggle with uh, gluttony, pornography, uh, fear of man, whatever, uh, 
you can you really have we have tools in this church to do something about it. All right, Luke five. Uh, and a lot of you know I love the first eleven verses of Luke. I've preached on those maybe twenty seven point three times. And um, but verse twelve, while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. I'll be lucky if I can get through this. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And uh, in our hearts, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and we thought Jesus said, I'm not willing. So many of us are struggling with thinking that. But I, I never saw a case in the scriptures that Jesus didn't say, I am willing. Be cleansed. And notice I have underlined touched him. We'll talk about that in a minute. And immediately the leprosy left him, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You know, I might as well use that to give you fair warning. You know, I've been trying to have a season of seeking the Lord and so forth, and we've had three or four crises in the church, and and they've taken all day, every day. And this this week, I'm I'm going to be just unplugging the phone and turning off my phone. And uh, if you need anything, well, that's why we have discipleship groups and a leadership team, because <laughs> uh, I really need to uh, to you know just get in the presence of God and and read the Word and seek the Lord. And uh, and you might need to do that too. Uh, he would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. One of the things I love about that is it was in the presence of uh, antagonists and enemies, and unbelief tends to hinder the flow and power of the Spirit of God. But, but uh, Jesus was carrying a strong enough anointing to overcome that. Uh, but day, uh, going on, but days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Uh, that's enough on that verse. Uh, notice that when Jesus was confronted with why his disciples didn't fast, but the disciples of the Pharisees always fasted, and John the Baptist uh, fasted, he said. Basically, you can't fast during Sydney and Melody's wedding reception. You know, <laughs> uh, that wouldn't make any sense. Uh, you know, plan ahead and <laughs> don't don't be scheduling a fast during the wedding reception. But uh, you know, Jesus is saying, "Hey, the bridegroom's right in your midst. Let's party." But the bridegroom's not going to be in your midst. And one of the things we're, that, we, that every Christian should be fasting about is the Bible talks about hastening the, the coming of the Lord. There are many things that, that, that must be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. Psalm 110 is the most quoted ver, uh, psalm in the entire Bible, quoted eight times and referred to uh, several other times in the New Testament. And it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, which is where Jesus is, until I make my enemies a footstool for thy feet. Do we see Jesus currently reigning over all the principalities, powers, both, both satanic and human throughout this earth currently? not like it's going to be before he gets off that seat to come back. And it's the work of the church to, you know, uh, the resurrection was D-Day and Pentecost, and, and it we're, we're now in a mop-up operation where we are to take the kingdom to all the world. We still have nations like Japan that only 1% are Christian. Only about 4% of, uh, of India is Christian. Le around 3% of Taiwan is Christian. And this is 2,000 years 
after Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And yet we spend so much time debating whether we got the liturgy right and whether, you know, the Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, Lutheran liturgy is right or, you know, whatever. And none of that really matters quite as much as fulfilling the Great Commission. And that's not to make decisions of all nations. It's to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that the Lord has commanded us. Uh, making a disciple is to teach someone an entire way to live with Christ at the center. And it involves every area of their life, vocation, marriage, social skills, study habits, disciplines, uh, you know, you name it, it involves everything. Your inward motivations and attitudes and so forth. Um, Acts 4, 31 through 33. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. You know, if Stephen had to fix some cracks because the place <laughs> was shaken, I'd be kind of okay with that. Um, Stephen might not, but we can, you can ask, ask him later. But uh, uh, thank God I don't do that part anymore. Um, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you know there are lots of people that are Christians and go to church and read their Bible who almost never share their faith and almost never have made a disciple? And that's okay if you've been a Christian less than three years, because even in the naturals, babies don't reproduce much. They make other byproducts, but we don't need to discuss that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, if you, you know, I hope you know that when you start to hit uh, puberty, you have to take certain steps not to have a bunch of kids all over the place, namely called abstinence and holiness and integrity, you know, and so forth. Uh, healthy bodies reproduce, period. They're, they bear fruit. If your you know, cherry tree isn't bearing cherries after a certain amount of time, it's got some kind of problem. It needs to be corrected and f figured out. And so um, if a Christian doesn't make disciples after some time, there's some problem. A lot of problem. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul and mind and great power was on them all and abundant grace was upon them all. Acts 2, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Churches that aren't growing, and I would say we are growing at a trickle, but God wants to do much more, is, is a aberration. You know, families that aren't making disciples is an aberration. One of the first places you're to bear fruit is how deeply you disciple your kids in Christ. Nothing more better than when your kids become arrows in the quiver, so to speak, and you can aim them at the right places and shoot an arrow into the heart of the kingdom of darkness. First John uh, I write these things so you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. Uh, that's equivalent in verse four to, to your joy being complete. God's, there's no darkness at all in God. And so if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. Uh, and he will, uh, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning righteous, sin, righteousness, judgment. 
I'm reading several books about moves of God and so forth, and one's by a guy I didn't know before. In fact, I don't remember his name uh, 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 right now, but he's a mega church pastor in Tennessee, Nashville. Um, and, you know, the book's pretty good, and he's basically talking about uh, how seeking uh, a worldwide move of God. And, um, uh, you know, his very first point, you know, first he has like a chapter about the, the what God wants to do in terms of pouring out his spirit and having an ongoing presence of God. And then the whole second chapter is about how much we need the presence of God. And the first half of the chapter about we need the presence of God is about, uh, he starts with Moses, but he documents people uh, through the Bible when they, when they first were called of God, the first thing they experienced was shame. And then he's talking about how, you know, uh, uh, you know, Christians are bound up by shame. And, and the truth is the antidote to that is, is, to, uh, is to walk in the light, to confess those sins to a qualified uh, kind of leader that can really help you do something about it. Now, I'm all for, like if you're a single brothers, uh, having uh, a certain amount, uh, yeah, if you got to get your kids, you can, uh, of accountability uh, with your kids. So flip over. Uh, I never really got to the outline, and uh, I forgot we're kind of doing a hard stop with bringing the kids up at a certain time nowadays. Uh, so uh, there's eight thoughts on seeking uh, the Lord's presence and so forth. Uh, notice I've uh, listed some books on uh, point G. Uh, and I and I would uh, I've used some verses from Joel, and I would highly recommend during this season that you uh, three to five times you spend some time reading the whole book of Joel, and uh, really kind of analyze that uh, the whole book of Joel is a call to humility, to confession of sins, to repentance, to corporate fasting. Uh, and and uh, a call and a promise that God will pour out his spirit on all peoples as a result. That's uh, quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. He quotes Joel 2, 28 through 31, I believe. And, uh, and uh, it's other promises of restoration because he talks about what the gnawing locust has eaten and the, so forth. And the truth of the matter is, lots of us have, have experienced uh, lots of damage. And uh, some kinds of damage, like in Matthew 17, this kind does not come out but by prayer and fasting. Now, I happen to know if you're a person who studies uh, the various manuscripts of the New Testament and debates thereof, that there's some debate whether that ver verse had in fasting originally but you could make the same point from lots of other verses. And so, um, uh, so that's, we're just going to go that far today. I'll probably just use the back of that outline one more time in two weeks. Next week, of course, we're going to have what we call Appreciation Sunday. And, uh, you know, I, I get emotional when I start thinking about that uh, uh, of, it, of any... Um, business I've been involved in and of any church I started, uh, which this is the fourth, uh, I've never had a situation where, like this where so many people did so many things. And in many cases, I don't even know what's going on or what they're doing. And, I, and that's so nice because it, uh, frankly, it, may, it makes it a lot easier to sustain. They, they, they talk a lot in all the church growth literature about how most pastors don't survive the church plant because it's, it, there's just such a tiring, exhausting, long-term cost to that that most pastors kind of fall into moral sin or, or just crash emotionally or, 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 and, have to, and just don't make it after seven or eight years. And, you know, we're now uh, uh, 16 or 17 years into it, and I... 
I'm, I'm feeling uh, like I'm getting a little better, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm getting reinvigorated a little bit here and there. And it sure helps that so many of you do so many things. And uh, if you don't have some jobs in the church, I feel sorry for you. See any of the discipleship group leaders because they can give you lots of jobs. And, uh, you know, uh, it, you know, it, you, you always want to um, um, leave your mark in, in the family. Like, and what I mean by that, like, um, you know, Sydney is, has been one of my best friends since, I don't know, 2004, I guess. And, um, and I really love Sydney, and he loves me. And, and uh, you know, if I, the, uh, once in a while I get to visit that house, and there's one room that used to be some weird pink color that was probably for a kid's nursery or something, but it was like hot, like, it was like pink on steroids, pink, you know, for, uh, for like three-year-old girls kind of thing. Or, and, um, and so, you know, uh, we had a couple ex, uh, cans of paint that we ended up, didn't, we didn't really like the color. It was a uh, almost white but it had just a tint of color in it and so and we weren't going to use them so I ended up I painted that room like two coats and uh, I think I got Logan a couple other guys to help me a little bit but and then you know Sydney has a dresser that that used to be our dresser and Carla actually slept her first night home from the hospital in the bottom drawer of the dresser uh, which we took out put on a table but uh, because I didn't have the crib I had painted it but it was still dry and and so you know, like uh, it's kind of nice that like there's things at the red house that used to be at our house, and uh, it, that's that's actually very nice. Like uh, like you want to make sure that like if you walk through the fellowship hall, it's like, well, I I I did that, you know, I I painted this or I fixed that window or you know I I uh, you know ran those wires or. Or, or whatever, you want to kind of, you know, at the, when the worship goes on, you want to know that it's partly as great as it was today because you contributed to the process. Or, or, or some, you know, you want to have areas like that in the church. And so we'll end with that. Uh, let's get, uh, I'm actually doing the communion meditation. Thank you.